first episode, we said that Measure for Measure confronts us with the material of tragedy, but ends with a redemptive possibility. Some readers find the play's true meaning in its tragic elements, but others see it ultimately as a story of hope, including Gordon Teske, Francis Lee Higginson Professor of English Literature at Harvard University, who guides our discussion. Measure for Measure, it's about, you could say, sex and social order. I say social order, but I really mean by that law. And I say sex, but I really mean the problem of male sexuality in this play. Uh, Not just the rape seen with Angelo, but also widespread prostitution, the spreading of venereal diseases as well. It's promiscuity and a lack of sexual ethics among men. And sexuality in this way is a symbol of the corruption of society at large in other areas as well, one of which would be greed, the other tyranny, another love of power. So this is why I find Measure for Measure so deep. It takes that main issue and and it allows us to look deeper into the issue itself and then into larger questions about social evils. The play's setting and language offer stark representations of these social ills. Much of the play takes place in prison, in the halls of justice and near houses of prostitution. The play's imagery links these together. Sex and procreation are not sources of love and life, but are instead aligned with sickness, sin and death. There are grim jokes about sexually transmitted diseases. When Angelo plans to blackmail Isabella, he refers to the strong and swelling evil of my conception, with the suggestion that human sins make their very birth an evil. The Duke tells Claudio, Thine own bowels which do call thee, sire, the mere effusion of thy proper loins, do curse thy diseases for ending thee no sooner. Children, that is to say, hope for their parents' deaths. The Duke speaks this line as he tries to prepare Claudio to accept his death by reminding him of the bleakness of life. This haunting speech is matched only by Claudio's equally haunting speech about the horrors of death. Aye, but to die and go we know not where. To lie in cold obstruction and to rot. This sensible, warm motion to become a kneaded clod and the delighted spirit to bathe in fiery floods. Tis too horrible. After these speeches... No hope appears to be left in death or life. The play examines the destructiveness and vulnerability of human life far more intensely than other Shakespearean comedies. But does the play's tragic awareness actually make it a tragedy? For many readers and critics, the answer comes down to how one interprets the Duke. In some interpretations, the Duke is little better than Angelo, First, he abdicates his responsibilities, and then he abuses his power. The Duke gives Angelo rule, even though he suspects or knows that Angelo is a hypocrite and a promise-breaker. Disguised as a friar who can hear confessions, the Duke deceives his subjects into revealing their most intimate secrets to him, 
and manipulates them into carrying out risky schemes for his own political ends. His marriage proposal pressures Isabella to give up her cherished desire for religious life, not unlike how Angelo pressured her to give up her treasured chastity. In this interpretation, ending with a marriage would make the play more tragic, not less. But of course, this is not the only way to interpret the play. In our time, the following three ideas are widely shared. Idea one, the Duke is a sinister figure, a manipulative tyrant. Idea two, the Duke's marriage proposal to Isabella at the end is analogous to Angelo's assault on her. That is to say, it's an abuse of power. Idea three, Isabella's desire to become a nun shows her uncomfortableness with her own sexuality, which manifests later um, as a kind of fanaticism. I disagree with all three propositions. To my mind, the Duke is entirely benevolent. His final marriage proposal is appropriate, and Isabella is a figure of spiritual purity. What is spiritual purity? I think ultimately this play is not a religious play. It's a secular play using some religious symbolism. So spiritual purity is really about integrity. Isabella's purity is a political statement, and it's a form of protest. This abstinence from entering into the regular cycle of generation that is expected of everyone is really a way of removing herself from a social order and thus protesting against it. So I see Isabella as a protester, a kind of activist. When Angelo pressures Isabella to sleep with him, he tells her, be that you are, that is, a woman, by putting on the destined livery. According to him, the destined livery for women is to accommodate the sexual desires of men. Isabella's commitment to chastity rejects this destiny. Her political protest and the Duke's political power become tools for social redress. Measure for Measure asks us to solve the political problem of human drives. Not just sexual drives, but also greed. Society is a kind of system. It's a system in which human urges and desires are pressing against legal and moral structures of control. And keeping that system in balance, preventing it from going into runaway where human impulses get the better of all law and morality, or in the other direction where law itself has become an oppressive and inhuman force. How do you keep that balance going? Well, this is the political problem. The Duke and Isabella address the problem by abstracting themselves from it. The Duke does it with his mind, making himself an observer. Isabella does it with her body. And in this very act, she makes her body a site for attack by the forces against which she is protesting. That's at least my interpretation, that the play is about social order among human animals with drives, drives that are always threatening that order, but which we can never extirpate entirely, but only learn to control morally and legally. 
Isabella and the Duke both remove themselves, in a way, from society, and notably both do so as religious figures. Isabella as a nun in training, the Duke in disguise as a friar. Nuns and friars belong to religious orders within the Christian faith of Catholicism. These religious roles shape the kind of political work that Isabella and the Duke are able to do. In Shakespeare's imaginative world, they become symbols of a kind of transcendence. And that's why I would hold that this is not a religious play, even though it mentions religious ideas. It's using religion to imagine a transcendence of a realm of the political that will allow us to have a clearer view of the political, as it were, from above. These religious figures represent a transcendental level of analysis as distinct from an imminent level of analysis. By an imminent level of analysis, you're in the midst of the circumstances. You're saying, how can law control the passions without destroying the passions? That's the way the Duke is thinking at first. He's going to increase the law, more law, less human impulsiveness. That's an imminent solution to the problem. A transcendent solution is one that steps outside that problem to a position that is above it. That's what I mean by the transcendent return or leap in this play. When you have paradoxes and conflicts that are irresolvable at one level of analysis, you move up to a higher level of analysis at which this more inclusive perspective may see ways of reconciling those contrasts. The play presents us with many such uncomfortable human conflicts. The generation of human life requires sexual desire, but that desire can also bring disease and death. We demand justice in our laws, but the people who enforce those laws may not be just themselves. As Angelo says, the jury passing on the prisoner's life may have a thief or two guiltier than him they try. We trust people who seem virtuous, but a virtuous appearance can be the best cover for vice. As Angelo says too, Let's write good angel on the devil's horn, tis not the devil's crest. We extol mercy as a virtue, but it can prove as harmful as vice. When Isabella begs Angelo to show some pity, he replies, I show it most of all when I show justice. For then I pity those I do not know, which a dismissed offence would after gall. Pardoning offenders encourages more offences, so that mercy to one person can become injustice to another. And we can know what is true and good, and yet be unable to behave accordingly. Many of the play's wisest insights into these human dilemmas come from Angelo, but his insights cannot save him from his headlong fall into sin. The play tries to find some resolution for these dilemmas by looking to a higher transcendental level. In the final scene, the Duke and Isabella enact three extremes taken from transcendental models, absolute injustice, absolute justice and absolute mercy. These extremes don't represent practical political solutions, but they do clarify the ideals that should shape these solutions.
This process of enacting different ideals may help explain why the Duke makes certain decisions that can seem unnecessarily cruel. His letting Isabella believe that Angelo really did execute Claudio as he intended, and his pretending not to believe Isabella when she denounces Angelo. Isabella comes before the Duke to ask for justice. Lord Angelo shall give you justice, he says. Isabella replies, You bid me seek redemption of the devil. She relates how Angelo demanded sex in exchange for her brother's life and then executed her brother anyway. The Duke then enacts a devilish or demonic inversion of justice when he arrests Isabella for slandering Angelo. Why does the Duke stage the initial scene of Isabella pleading and have her arrested for slander? This scene is an enactment. We're seeing the enactment of what usually happens to a woman in Isabella's situation. She'd be accused of slander and, at least in the world of this play, sent to prison without so much as a fair hearing. A woman who has been wronged, protests against it, files a complaint, and is degraded as a slanderer. And then we see this unjust but typical action undone by a just action, which is the exposure of Angelo. The Duke may stage this demonic scene of absolute injustice to show us clearly what we do not want. We see it so we can be horrified by it, and so we can better appreciate its opposite when it comes. The Duke reveals he was the friar who knew the truth of Angelo's actions all along, and he sentences Angelo to death for betraying his promise and executing Claudio, staging a scene now of absolute justice. An Angelo for Claudio, death for death, he declares. Haste still pays haste and leisure answers leisure, like doth quit like and measure still for measure. Once again, we are facing an enactment. The Duke knows something that would make that inappropriate and he will undo it in due course. But in the meantime, we are seeing the enactment of justice, the enactment of fairness. An Angelo for a Claudio, death for death. There you see them, the scales of justice. And it's deeply satisfying to us. Here we find another transcendental model. Isabella called Angelo a devil, while Angelo represents the Duke as God. I perceive your grace like power divine hath looked upon my passes. God, with power divine, knows all our hidden sins. God is also, as Isabella puts it, the top of judgment, executing justice on those sins. At this moment, the Duke stands in top of judgment, and the justice he enacts, echoing God's absolute justice, is highly satisfying. It reverses the horrifying scene of injustice we just witnessed. But here, still, there is something missing. To see what that is, we only have to turn back to the phrase, measure for measure. Measure for measure. The phrase actually comes from the seventh chapter of Matthew, from the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not, that ye be not judged, 
For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Now, in fact, the meaning of those words, measure for measure, in this play, seem to me almost the opposite of what Jesus means in the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is dismissing the whole system of law as a kind of balancing out and appealing to a higher level of gracious awareness. That higher level of gracious awareness, countering the Duke's death-for-death sentence, is the next scene we see enacted. Mariana has just been married to Angelo, and she wants a life with him. So she kneels to plead for what was missing from the last scene, for mercy. This is where the third transcendental model comes in. If God is the top of judgment, he is also the one who, as Isabella puts it, found out the remedy to save condemned souls. In the Christian story, this remedy came through Jesus's absolute self-sacrificing mercy. Isabella enacts this now. She still believes that Angelo betrayed his promise and executed her brother, but she kneels to plead for his life. We surely gasp with amazement, as if we're seeing something so horrible or so transcendently gracious we can hardly decide which it is when she kneels down beside Mariana. This is a transcendent act of mercy and generosity that can awe us with its moral beauty. It can also horrify us with its cost. It requires the victim to suffer twice, first from the crime and then from the painful self-sacrifice of giving up the justice one is owed. Like absolute justice, such absolute mercy is attractive in some ways, but neither is a practical political solution in itself. Jesus isn't too interested in the imminent problem of reconciling the law with impulses. He's interested only in the transcendental point of view. That's not the case with this play. It's interested in returning from a transcendental view into the imminent problems of the social So I think the measure-for-measure title of the play means to take those words in a positive sense, even though they're used by Jesus in a negative sense, as a lower level of reasoning. The play now moves towards more imminent practical solutions. These will involve some balance and weighing, just as they will involve some forgiveness and forbearance. They aren't identical with the transcendental extremes we have witnessed, but they are informed by them. So at the imminent level of analysis, mercy just means if you're merciful to one person, you're unmerciful to others because you're not enforcing the law. Exactly the point that Angelo makes to Isabella, and she can't refute it. But if you move to another level, mercy comes to mean something that is larger than simply unfairness to others. It has the good of the whole in view. Angelo's point is borne out by the character of Lucio. While the Duke was letting the laws go unenforced, Lucio persuaded a woman named Kate Keepdown to sleep with him by promising her marriage. He then lied in court and denied what he had done to avoid marrying her. She is a prostitute now and may have been forced into this work to support herself and Lucio's child. Mercy to someone like Lucio, that is, simply failing to punish him, 
does do injustice to someone like Kate. But while Angelo argued as a human judge, Isabella appealed to the transcendental perspective. All the souls that were, were forfeit once. She articulates the deeper truth that humanity itself is flawed. We will all need mercy at some point for ourselves, just as we will all need justice at some point to protect us from the faults of others. But, by the same token, justice that merely punishes and mercy that merely dispenses with punishment would, one way or another, prove ruinous to everyone. The solution is to replace a focus on punishment with a focus on the good of the whole society. This is the solution the Duke finds for Angelo. The Duke brings forth Claudio alive, revealing that Angelo's order of execution was never carried out. He then pardons Angelo, grants him life and tells him, Look that you love your wife, her worth, worth yours. That phrase, her worth, worth yours, mirrors the balanced phrasing of measure still for measure. This solution is structured by the fairness of justice. But it isn't the justice of matching injury with injury. It's the justice of restoration. Angelo is made to keep his promise of marriage to Mariana, just as the Duke then orders Claudio and Lucio to keep their marriage promises to Juliet and to Kate. The women are granted justice, a justice that will help them more than executions would. The men are granted mercy, not in escaping responsibility for what they have done, but in being allowed to live and to take responsibility for others. The play has engaged with the problems of sexual desire, how to accept its necessity, harness its goodness and curb its destructive potential. The Duke once denied this was a problem for him. Believe not that the dribbling dart of love can pierce a complete bosom, he said. But now he feels the dart of love too, and his solution for himself is the same one he opposed on his subjects, responsibility and respect. I have a motion much imports your good, he tells Isabella, whereto if you'll a willing ear incline, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. His words to her are balanced and respectful. The Duke makes sure that the decision will be hers, not his. That's why that phrase is so important, if you'll a willing ear incline. You might not incline a willing ear. I'm telling you now, I will accept that. But if you're willing, then this is what I'll have to say to you. The Duke, he's already in, in love. He doesn't expect her to be where he is yet. He just wants to know if she's wishing to start out on that journey. So I think in the theatre, there has to be a delay, a hesitation on Isabel's part because she's giving up the firm purpose of dedication. There's no doubt the Duke's proposal is startling. It's unexpected and personal. It's also startling because it's such a perfect solution to the problem of the state. So I'm happiest with a long pause before Isabella puts her hand on the Duke's extended arm so that he may conduct her off the stage respectfully with the rest. I'm less happy with a freeze-frame ending where 
She stands absolutely still before the lights go off. But I don't think that is entirely false to the spirit of the play. But I do think that showing her recoiling, walking away, and so forth, those actions are, to my mind, out of touch with the spirit of the play. We live in very different times and are very aware of power differences in relationships, though I think we might underestimate how aware of it Shakespeare was as well. We're struggling in all our institutions to eliminate sexual harassment and actual sexual predation by men. And this play is about sexual harassment. It's stunningly relevant. So it's very tempting at the end of the play to make the Duke's proposal another example of the abuse of power for sexual advantage. But to give into that attempting interpretation of the play is perhaps out of step with the political spirit of the play. The state is being set in order again. And the keystone, so to speak, of that order will be, we may hope and expect, the marriage of the Duke and Isabella. We're not allowed to count on it, but we're allowed to hope for it and expect it. Measure for Measure leaves us with the feeling of satisfaction and hope, satisfaction of the fulfillment of the action of the play and of justice, and hope for this society that has gone through an enactment and a process of improvement. Wisdom and purity, learning and intellect, are joined at the end in the persons of the Duke and Isabella or potentially joined, and they are potentially the leaders of this new society. They certainly have their work cut out for them, but they're the right people to do this work. Therein lies the hope. Satisfaction and hope blended together. It's what we spend our lives in our deepest moments aspiring towards. And that's why this play connects with the deepest moments in our lives. Measure for Measure is about life about going on living with all the problems of life. And that means going on thinking. And that is why I love this play so much. In our next episode, we'll look at two key scenes between Isabella and Angelo and explore how the play begins its movement towards hope by confronting some of the darkest problems of life. 